Hello and welcome to another episode of Fully Scored. Today we're recording in Cambridge and it's a lovely cloudy day. And I'm joined by an absolute legend of Salvation Army brass band and music making, John Mott. First of all, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Good to be here. Um, so to start things off with the interview, uh, could you tell me a bit about yourself, um, your early life and where you were born? Well, surprisingly enough, I was born in Cambridge and... Uh, um, I'm the third generation Salvationist. My grandfather is to blame for everything. Uh, he fell in love with my grandma, and uh, that's the beginning of it all. My father uh, became a Salvationist and was a bandmaster here for oh, 25 years. And, uh, and then my two brothers and I, we followed suit. So that's, that's my background, and that's why I started. This is where I learned to play, not very well, I have to say. Uh, my father despaired of me as a player in the YP band, but, you know, eventually I, <laughs> I made it. Great. And what are some of your earliest memories of the Salvation Army here in Cambridge? My first memory of the Salvation Army is being hauled by my mother up off the Sumpster platform to be beaten outside Christmas. I was making a nuisance of myself in the meeting. So one, my first memory is of punishment. <laughs> uh, secondly, I suppose my inadequate... Uh, um, responses to edu- education from YP band leaders and, and the like to try and play and I really wasn't that interested so uh, I mean I did kind of manage but I only just scraped by until I became about 15 then it all changed and you mentioned that you learned to play an instrument in the YP band were you just thrust an instrument into your hands or did you want that's, to learn an instrument? that's exactly how it was my brother was a very good cornet player my older brother and my younger brother, both good cornet players, but I was the black sheep. And uh, they gave me a euphonium, which was a little squat euphonium. Uh, and there's a story, if you want to know, but I was told to go to Mr. Johnson, who was the principal cornet player in the senior band, to go for lessons on this euphonium, which had no case. It was a, a, I don't know if you've ever seen them. They're kind of quite short little instruments in those. They're triumphonic, made by the army. Okay. So carrying this instrument on the bus, because it was too big to take on my bike, I went down to Mr. Johnson's, and to my shame and utter um, discouragement, three boys from my school got on after me, and Cat called me all the way down to Mr. Johnson's house with all kinds of uh, remarks, some of which can be relayed here and some which which can't. Um, I thought, I have long for the stop to come, got to the stoop of the bus to jump off and one of the boys said I'm Motty, which end of that thing do you blow? So I pointed to the mouthpiece and I said well I use this one but if I had a mouth as big as yours I'd use the other end and jumped <laughs> off quickly in retreat. Very very good. But that didn't last long, those lessons didn't last long. And later in your life you became a Salvation Army officer, mm. for those that don't have a Salvation Army background, a full time minister working for the Salvation Army yeah. How did you come to discover this calling. I was a songster leader here at the time, and uh, I had, for a brief, brief few months, been the bandmaster before I moved to Kettering and then came back. And uh, and I, I was made the songster leader, um, and we were singing one Sunday morning a song I think it's by Ruth Tracy, but I can't remember which one it was. <laughs> but the words were so telling. Uh, I thought this is for me, and I have dithered with God 
for a, a long time whether I should do this or not. My wife was not very happy about it. She didn't like the idea at all. So there were those two reasons. I mean, my dithering and her reluctance were the reasons I didn't go. But there came a time when, and when I got home um, from that meeting, she said to me, um, uh, you really ought to do this, shouldn't you? We talked. And I remember being in the kitchen, I picked the phone up and I rang the core officer and I told him what was our decision. Could you uh, give us a little bit of an insight into your time at the training college? <laughs> I hated it. Oh, really? I disliked it completely and utterly. Um, I was too old. I was 38, and there I was mixing with 21-year-olds. I had a wife and two children. My, uh, my son was nine, and 11, I beg your pardon. And my daughter was nine, and uh, I didn't like it at all. Um, I was put in a house with two other married couples. One was a New Zealand doctor uh, who went straight to India uh, as a missionary. And the other one was a, the corps sergeant major from Greys, Peter Ward his name was. There were just three families in there. And I, I felt imprisoned. I didn't like girls of 21 telling me what to do. I'd been in business and run businesses and all that kind of stuff. And I, I didn't like it at all. So I, I survived but I only survived for nine months because they said they took pity on two of us and said, Look, you're, because you're mature, we're going to send you to core after the nine-month training. Just come back for, for the odd lecture and spiritual days and all that kind of stuff uh, and, and then the rest of it would be down to you. So that's exactly what we did. We were delighted to be released. Our bonds were removed. <laughs> And when you were released, you had a few different core appointments. Yeah, Can yeah. you talk us through some of the different appointments and the yeah, places that you were? Yeah. yeah, the first one was to a place called Downham, which is near Bromley. No longer there. There's a block of flats there now. Uh, so our ministry was very effective. Um, and uh, the next one was Skegness, which is on the seas. We didn't quite know where that was, but we looked it up on the map and <laughs> found a little seaside place on the Lincolnshire coast uh, where we formed a little band. About three of us played, my, my children and I we all played, so we started. And then another family joined us, and then another family, and then another family. So we ended up with 12 in the band. That meant we could march to the clock tower and have open air meetings, which is what we did for three years. And it was very good learning curve for me to talk to people in the open air to their face without referring to books and papers and all that kind of stuff. So I learned that trade, that trade so to speak, in Skegness. And there we capped on the East Coast to give Grimsby. The remarkable story about Grimsby is um, I did a musical or two uh, in Grimsby and we never had enough men to join the chorus. So um, what did we do? Uh, there were three girls in the songsters. I said, your husbands are coming to have a bit of fun when the rehearsal for the music. Yeah, okay, yeah, they did. So they joined in and they came in to be part of the, of, of the cast. Eventually, those three men came to faith. Eventually, those three couples all became officers. They're all retired now. But it was a remarkable, um, significant fact for me that God was in, telling me I was in the right place. There are lots of things like that that happened to me. Excellent. And as part of your officership, uh, you were then appointed to the National Bandmaster. <laughs> yeah. um, was this a surprise to you? Oh, utterly, was a... utterly surprised. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll tell you how I got the appointment. 
Do you know Jackie Proctor? Have you heard of Jackie Proctor? She was in the ISS, a founder member of the ISS. I was CEO in Lurgan in Northern Ireland. My phone rang. Hello, John. It's your Jackie here. You're coming to join us tomorrow. Am I? Yes. And that was a total surprise. The fact that the next morning I got a letter from Dennis Hunter to say, National Bramers, I was shook, rigid. I thought of all the luminaries that had been before me. Dean Goffin, Norman Bearcroft, Trevor Davis, Leslie Condon, and I thought, they say John Mott, who's he? I could try to imagine the bandsman's ears when they heard the news, you know. So, yes, it was a shock. And uh, can you tell us a bit about what you did in this role and some of your highlights of that time? Yeah, I can. Uh, highlights were obviously the Royal Albert Hall concerts, which I took part in. Uh, but what I tried to do was uh, a thing that uh, Les Condon had done before me. I copied Les, basically. Uh, Les used to get around the country a lot. In fact, he's decided, one of his titles is The Man Who Can't Say No. Right. And, um, and he, wherever he was invited, he went. So I tried to get to the farthest divisions first. The principle was you went for a week to a, div- to a division, so you did five rehearsals in the evening, and then a weekend tapped on the end of that for some special congress or whatever it was, a divisional event with the bands. So I tried to get around as far as I could. But I was stopped after about uh, two and a half years by a change of administration, which we'd better not go into. Okay. Um, and what do you see as the main difference, uh, differences between the role as National Bandmaster and your core officership? Not a lot. Um, I saw them both as ministry, in the same way that I see selling the war cry in the town here as ministry. Um, you, you minister your personality, I think. Um, you don't minister your knowledge. You don't minister your your capabilities, you minister yourself. And if you demonstrate that you love God and it shows in communication with people, that's enough as far as I'm concerned. But so, so that for the two things, the same thing applies. It's ministry, as far as I'm concerned, anyway. Brilliant. And during your time as a national bandmaster, you worked with uh, Norman Bearcroft and I believe yep. Les Condon as no, well? No, just, just Norman. Yeah. Um, could you tell us a bit about what it was like to work with Norman? Chaos. <laughs> uh, but great, great fun. Uh, his, when he was writing music and he wouldn't be in the office, I had to say, I'm sorry, Major Bearcroft is in New York. That was his, that was his calling card. <laughs> uh, I thought, oh, OK, fine. So they didn't trouble him at home or didn't trouble him for another two or three days after that. But, uh, but he was very encouraging to me, I have to say very encouraging, especially with the formation of the Troops Band. Could you uh, give us a little bit of history about the original Household Troops Band? Formed in 1887, the original band, from an advert in the war cry. If you're saved, if you're physically fit and you can play, this this is a slight paraphrase of come along to Clapton, I think, Congress Hall, and basically it was an audition. And he selected 25 players and they began their exploits which were historic and life-changing for many people. Many people were saved through their ministry. They marched from town to town and uh, they did have, they must have had some fun because they were all young guys, all under 25 I think. 
and um, but that's how it was formed initially. And when I reformed it in 1985, it was a quite a similar story. Um, we had just come back from Cobham, where I'd done one of the bands there, and um, Kevin Ashman worked in the music department then, and he was also in the East London Youth Band. I said, look, Kevin, I said, I've got this germ of an idea. I said, I've seen this historic stuff about the old band. Wouldn't it be great if we could have a little tour around the south coast? Yeah, the boys would be up for that. He said, I think. I said, well, I've got about 18 names, but I need a few more. So he thought of a few more. And then we phoned them up and rang them up, said, would you be up for this? And we got uh, 30 players together and, uh, and off we went. We had no money. We had no music. We had no uniform. We didn't have anything at all. So we Kettering Band had just gone into new festival tunics and I knew Donald Manning quite well and I said, can I borrow these festival tunics? You're, you're the ones. Yes, yes, he says, but we need them back. I said, well, I only want them for ten days or so. You can, you can have them. I said to, uh, I think it was Ray Bowes as the staff band marshal at the time, can I borrow your, your music stands? Yeah, yeah, you can. I said to Jim Williams, can I borrow your pads? He said, yes. They all said yes. And I said to the band master at Carlisle, where I'd just come back from, I said, you've got some very nice um, stand banners which got no name on, just the crest. Can I borrow it? Yes. And it was always yes, yes, yes. There, there was a man who was a bus driver, Tony Thorogood. Uh, it was at Bahaki, or his trombone player. And he said, well, I said, I said, what about getting your coach? He said, yeah, I could do that do that. I said, we've got to go here, there and everywhere. Organised the tour. The money for that tour came from the most unlikeliest source you ever heard of. I was still in a war cry in Southend and this old boy used to come up to me every Thursday and give me 50p, then go over the road into the betting shop, put 50p on the GGs. Uh, one day he came up and he said, uh, oh, he said, I've had a bit of luck, John. He said, uh, so he gave me a white, white envelope. I shoved it in my tunic, but forgot all about it. A week later, I'm putting the same tunic on. Oh, this George's. So I fished out this envelope. Inside, there's a cheque for £75,000 drawn on Coots and Company Bank, the Royal Bank. He turned up in his old T-shirt and his jeans, as usual, put 50p in. I said, George, I said, this is an amazing man. He waits for the Salvation Army. I, I respect the Salvation Army, he said. And they said, what is more? He said, I went to the lifeboats, the hospice, and the Royal British Legion, and they all had 75,000 that morning. I didn't ask where it had come from. He said, I told you I'd had a bit of luck. I said, well, that's true, you did. <laughs> he later discovered that he won two and a quarter million pounds on the lottery. I was told to send the money back whenever. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. So, so the South End Building Fund just blossomed immediately, and so they've got a nice new building. So I said to George, I said, look, I said, I've just formed this band, George. I said, but, you know, we're going to, going to the South Coast. The, the bus is going to cost 600 quid. I'll look after that, he said. In fact, I'll give you a £1,000 for the next three years. And that's how we started with our money. Wow. And George gave us a £1,000 each summer to do the first two or three tours. Now we started to sell a few CDs 
a built out of a balance for the subsequent tours. Amazing. And uh, as you mentioned, a big part of the Household Flutes band is the tours. I believe the original band, the original tour was six months long, and then they were the first Salvation Army band to Go travel on. across the Atlantic. That's right. Um, and still, when you refilmed a band, it's been a big part of the band, and uh, I wasn't in the band at the time, but no. I've heard all the stories about the original tours being coastal tours. Could you tell us a little bit about the format of those tours? Sure, sure. Well, I mean, I took the view that where were the people in August? It was always... Um, Bank Holiday Weekend. So we finished the tour on Bank Holiday Weekend somewhere. So where are people in the summer? They're not in the core in the hinterland. They're at the seaside. So I thought, well, that's where we're going to go. So I contacted all the core officers beforehand where we were going to go. Yes or no. Some said no. Some said no, we can't afford it. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, and we eventually set up a tour. And so we do a dip different bit of the coast, the east coast, Scotland, Wales, West is best tour, <laughs> which wasn't the best actually by a long way, uh, but um, but you know, the south coast was always the best, we did the south coast three or four times, but they always received us great, well, sorry, and um, so that's how they were formed, so it was almost coastal, and then we, of course we got invitations to go inside the country, we had a cities tour I think once. Because we've been going around the coast so much, we said we went up the middle, so Nottingham and Leeds and Blackpool finished up there. Finished in the Royal Parks two or three times, so St James's Park, Hyde Park, with the bandstands, got paid for it, so that was all, it all helped. So that's it was always where people were was, and uh, I should tell you, uh, the boys have probably already told you this that I liked the band to march the streets. I have a thing about the flag. Uh, there's a story about that flag. It was in my cupboard in, in the office. An old thing in a corner, been not used for years. And when I pull it, covered, covered in dust and dirt. And I pulled it up and it said, the National Songsters. They were the precursor to the ISS, but they were a, a ladies' group. So I thought, perhaps we can use this flag, because we couldn't afford a flag, so, so I took it home, my missus washed it, she put some fringe round the, round the edge, we had a, the, the national songs was taken off, and the household troops band put on, complete with moth holes, it looked good for the band that we were, and you know, it was quite old, and that, that flag lasted 40 years, and John Gowans, who's a great hero of mine, I'm sorry I'm talking such a lot, no, uh, great. but uh, John Gowans, he had a theory that flags lived they shouldn't be decorating halls. They should be out there, alive, fluttering, so that people could see the significance of what, who we are and all the rest of it. So I took that to heart. So every, everywhere we went, we marched every single time. Wherever we were. I don't know whether they still do that. I think they do it a lot, even now. Most of the time. Yeah, and, uh, and so that was a real, real pet theory of mine, that we should be out there uh, demonstrating who we were. And have you got a particular favourite concert that you've done with a band or a particular memory that will always stick with you? Yeah, the very first time they played. The very first time they played, I got the band together. It was January, in a very cold wood green hall. And this same Tony Thorogood was a, boy, a Jack, a Jack a lad. He knew everybody in East London. Oh, it's cold in here, Tony. Uh, 
leave it to me. Out comes his van, goes and gets some gas heaters and puts them all around the hall. So he hadn't played a note up to that point. So we all sat out in the hall. It was about half past ten on a Saturday morning, I think. And I forget what it was, either a hymn tune or a march. But I'd only got four bars into the piece. And I knew... knew that God had blessed this. Four bars of music, you know, and the playing from these boys who have superb players, all of them, and the sound, you know, just, and that was the best time I ever heard the band. I played better than that afterwards, but the best time for me was that, that, that moment. Um, what was your vision going forward for the band? Was there always a plan to keep it going as a long-term yeah. term band? Yeah, very much so. I mean, we had a bit of break after 85 for about four or five years and then started again, I think, in 92, I think. Um, yes, I saw it as a, an ongoing thing and I'm so glad that Carl is continuing to... Whenever I speak to him, which is not very often, uh, he will say, well, this is your band, John, he says. But... Uh, He's doing extremely well. He's a much better musician than me and a much better conductor than me. But uh, he's a bit younger too. But <laughs> I was, how old was I when I started? I think I'll be about 55, 56 or something like that. And I carried on until I was, I don't know, 70 odd. Could you give us a little bit of an insight into the history of why yeah. the band wear the iconic Piff yes. Helmets? Yeah. Well, the, the first thing, of course, is the original band, the 1885 band. They wore them because they were, they were the military style of the day. In those days, the Infant Salvation Army had all kinds of stuff that they wore. You know, anything militaristic looking, they wore it. But um, I'll tell you how it started. And I'd been thinking about these, these helmets for, from when the band started. I was in the, the East London Youth Band doing the Lord Mayor show, playing the cymbals on one occasion, which I quite liked doing. And uh, we were marching behind a brother band who got these helmets on. So when we'd finished parading, I went down to see the bandmaster. I said, where did you get the helmets? He said, um, well, there's a firm in Whitney in Oxfordshire. They sell them. They make two, two kinds. So they, they make a plastic one, which is the one we've got, he said, and he showed me. And they make this other one made of cork. So the one of cork is much more expensive. Oh, I said, OK. So I rang them up and I said, I'd like to order 30 helmets of various sizes because I, I didn't measure anybody's head. I just said, well, I have had assorted sizes. Well, they said, OK, well, they had to be made specially. So they duly arrived. And when they arrived, they were, I thought they were the plastic ones, but they were the expensive ones. Believe it or not, one of them was £17. The other one was 40 quid. When they arrived, we unpacked them discovered we've got the expensive one they've made a mistake I rang them up and said look you've sent me the oh is this for the Salvation Army I said yeah it is oh well that's fine he said we just charge you for the plastic ones then my wife bless her heart she got all these badges and she sewed them all on and she would put the ribbons we bought cat badges from SPNS and tuck them in so they go across in the start exactly the style the 1887 band. They first made their appearance in Blackpool, of all places. The boys were a bit nervous, but they were all on a bus, and we were just about to go for the first march in open air on a Saturday afternoon. And, uh, come on now, you know, if you say it with 
uh, authority. In those days, you could get away with it. Uh, oh, wait, put your helmets on, and so, and they did. And, put them on, and uh, immediately, striking appearance with a red tunic and white gloves. I don't know whether you still wear white gloves, but... Not the white gloves anymore. I think they've disappeared yeah, in the last disappeared. couple of years. Yeah. I think there's a story that they got very, very wet on the Lord Mayor's procession did. and went a little bit mouldy, yeah, I that's think right, so. That's right, yeah. So, anyway, and, 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 and you know, they look striking. And, of course, immediately they are recognised these days. Absolutely. You, you know, yeah. you can tell that's the, that's the band by the helmets. Brilliant. So, thank you ever so much. So, I've had a couple of questions sent in by your successor, uh, Carl Saunders, and he asks these two questions. If you could conduct any band in the world, which band would it be? That one. <laughs> the Household Troops. Yes, of Fantastic. course. And would that be the modern Household Troops band or the band that you had back in, in the 80s and 90s? I would probably say the 85 band. Uh, the band got to be very good around about 92. Um, and then, uh, I mean, because of the changes in personnel, it sometimes was, was very good, and sometimes was only good or mediocre. I mean, you had to depend on what you could get, and it's still the same now, I think, the band, you have to depend. I mean, the nucleus of players is still there, I think. And, uh, but uh, that, would be my, that would be my answer, yes. Great. And I've conducted Enfield and one or two others as well. Absolutely. Um, and the second question is... Uh, what do you find is the best way of keeping fit in your 80s? <laughs> I know what he's driving. Well, I used, I used to play squash until I was 78. And I loved it. Nice. Good sport. And I loved it. And it was 40 minutes hard exercise. And I played twice a week. And that did keep me really fit. But in the end, I had arthritis in my knees, which had stopped me. So I'm now, I haven't played for nine years, I suppose. But I, I try to walk a bit, but I don't walk enough. Um, so now we move on to the section of the interview where we have some quirky quickfire questions for you. Okay, I'll do my best. Okay. <laughs> so, the first question. Spitfire or Concord? Oh, Spitfire. Okay. Holly or Ivy? Holly. I'm sure she'll be delighted. She would. <laughs> Who's your favourite Salvation Army composer? RSA. Okay, Race Deadman Allen, for those that might not know the acronym. Uh, who's your favourite non-Salvation Army composer? Elgar, I think. Okay. Um, in your opinion, what is the most iconic piece of Salvation Army band music that's ever been written? Most iconic? I would have to be, for me, on Ratcliffe Highway, I think. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, what's your go-to Bible translation? NEB, NEB, New English Bible, yes. Okay. And have you got a favourite verse of scripture? Yes, I have. I can't quote you the, the quotation. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with the other, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Fantastic. I think it's one of the Gospels. Okay. <laughs> uh, have you got a favourite book in the Bible? Not really. Uh, the books I like best are the Gospels, yeah, and I suppose Mark of the Four. Okay. But they're not really favourites because I mean Paul's got some amazing things to say in the in the later on. If you could go to the moon or the bottom of the ocean, which would you choose? Bottom of the ocean. Uh, least favourite fast food restaurant? 
McDonald's. Oh, okay. That's my age speaking. <laughs> so we have Andrew Blythe, who, who's his favourite yes, restaurant exactly. in the entire world, and uh, contrasts, that's what we do well. Have you got a favourite author? Yes, I have. Robert Harris, who I've read everything he's ever written. Which Hogwarts house would you be in? I have no idea. <laughs> okay. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? I think to make people more joyous and to love each other a bit better. Excellent. Um, have you got a favourite state in America? Yes, California. Excellent. Uh, can you describe in one word the best socks you've ever owned? Quirky. Okay, very good. Uh, have you got a favourite Household Troops band member? Oh, no, <laughs> I haven't. No. <laughs> Okay, uh, finish the song lyric, uh, the carol lyric, I should say. Ding dong merrily on. Hi. Hello. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, least favourite hot beverage? Uh, least favourite hot beverage? I suppose cho- hot chocolate. I okay. drink it, but it's no. not my favourite. Okay, uh, have you got a favourite cave? Cave? Hmm. My shed. Okay, the man cave. Is yes. it? <laughs> um, what's your favourite variety of sausage? Lincolnshire. Oh, very nice. I'm sure the listeners in Lincolnshire will be delighted. Absolutely, by both, that. Both of them, yes. <laughs> and uh, to finish these quickfire questions, a very deep and profound question here. <laughs> uh, have you got a favourite vitamin? No, I haven't. Okay, no, brilliant. Thank you ever so much for your time in okay. the interview. Uh, John will be joining us later good, for good fun. Band Mastermind. Thank you for coming. So, we're continuing our analysis of the Holy War with Dr Howard Evans. In last episode, uh, we got to about letter H, the start of the battle music of the Holy War. Howard, could we dive right back in through letter H and have a look at what the music is doing here? Yeah, I mean, from here we start this sort of development thing into the battle scene, um, although the battle music and the, the sense of conflict actually starts at letter J. Um, it's just the kind of preamble that sets that up musically. And we, we have this lovely invocation. Um, we've had at letter G the introduction of the chorale, and we get these fragments of the chorale in the con- kind of context of, of Bunyan and and that particular era, it's almost like the, you, if you want to use your imaginations, you get these fragments of the chorale before letter J. It's almost like the knight having his vigil before he goes out to battle the following day. You can see him in his armour and his helmet and his sword and, and maybe kneeling at the altar. It's almost a moment of prayer. It's actually marked solemnly at the top of the score there in Italian. I just didn't pronounce it in Italian. Um, <laughs> and... Um, and you get the fragments of the chorale, and then it's almost like the last little bit of the chorale, the fanfare bit of the chorale uh, with the cornets and trombones is almost like a sort of clarity of purpose about getting out and going on your way. And we move into this battle music. Some of the battle music here at Letter J, um, I've spoken previously about the original version. Some of this is uh, here is very different. There's actually a lot of percussion work um, if I recall 
some of the sounds of the original version, there was actually quite a lot more solo percussion work okay. at the start of this battle scene, as if sort of setting it all off. So Ray obviously had second thoughts about yeah, that. Don't want them getting too excited. No, don't want the percussionists <laughs> getting too excited. And and we get these um, we get these motifs that sort of come through that answer this sort of insistent trombone stuff. The percussion work here is actually. Uh, really important and and the whole thing sort of keeps building and takes uh, takes us through to letter K. The interesting thing through here as well is that the tempo keeps pushing. Um, it's very interesting listening to uh, recordings of this particular work in the battle scene here and comparing different recordings with different speeds. Ray actually says Allegro ma non troppo, not too fast. Um, crotchet equals 104. Most of the recordings that I've listened to tend to start this slightly quicker mm. and get the energy going. Um, and and some of them, whilst the accelerandos, uh, the sort of real climax comes at the stringendo uh, and into M and further on, so that before letter N, we end up at a crotchet equals 176. Uh, actually, some performances actually get there quite a bit sooner than that in terms of the vigour and the energy that goes into this. Quite an interesting kind of aspect of the whole sense of performance practice and how we sort of get influenced by other recordings. Um, it's very interesting to sometimes start from afresh and double check our metronome marks as to what the composer is actually wanting and meaning here. So maybe he's not wanting it to start sort of quite in your face, although some of the music is in your face. There is a sort of threat to the opening of that section in terms of the way he sort of keeps it down, takes some of the volume uh, directions away and makes that work. themes here in K. Yeah, the themes, uh, the themes here in K, I think there's all sorts of little bits through here. La, pa, pam. You get that, again, that comes from one of the cells uh, that we get earlier on in the piece. Uh, again, if you look at Dudley's analysis of, of where that comes from, but it's also in, integrated into that interval there, a letter K, is that tiram is that diminished fourth interval. It's sort of quite clearly written like that. Take out the D and you get that pattern of the diminished fourth interval. You get some of the kind of sort of inverted beam. You get some of those inverted mansol uh, figures through here. There's so many fragments. The third interval, which features quite heavily, we get that quite a lot through here. It all plays its part in some of the fragmentary material, the decorative material. Uh, and then at, uh, before letter L, we get our main theme, our faith theme, we get that coming in, it's part of the battle scene, it's also inverted above that. Again, there is just so much detail, 
we could spend hours analysing every bar and the kind of sort of motivic detail as to what's actually going on there. And it's, some of it is compressed. You get answers that come straight away. You get, uh, and, and then you get sort of bar after bar where, where, where it comes through. Um, and the music starts to pick up energy and sort of gets developed through there. Um, we get that diminished fourth interval again at the stringendo. We get the inverted before letter M, D, pa, 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 pa. We get that inverted interval again. We get the minor third intervals that feature quite heavily um, that then give us, uh, uh, it moves us on the, the, the intervals and the compression, the rhythmic compression and the harmonic compression at letter M keep driving us forward. So there's lots of compositional devices through here in terms of the way themes and motives are shortened and fragmented harmonically shift, harmonically shift more quickly that then gives us this whole sense of the kind of sort of conflict and, and everything moving through. I mean, we could we could we could just spend so much time sort of going through it in terms of of, of what's happening to it all. So that takes us through after the dialogue we've had between the two forces of good and evil in yep. section M. That takes us through to letter M, where the style changes again, and we have some recapitulations of the opening, the happy yep. and joyous themes. It's almost a bit like a recapitulation, but it's still part of the battle sort of musically the kind of sort of structure it's it's almost it, it's it's in the euphonium of the baritone there which kind of sort of uh, mirrors sort of what happened sort of earlier on in terms of what happens at the beginning and uh, so it's kind of sort of part recapitulation but this part recapitulation is still part of uh, programmatically the battle scene whereby it's almost that sort of mansoul and that faith motive is asserting itself but we get this final bit of venom. Uh, trombones, I think, are very good, supposed to be very good at venom. So the trombones have the venom at letter O. And then we get this kind of sort of fascinating chord that sort of brings us um, through to this sort of risoluto and this sort of this, 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 the, the motive um, in the kind of sort of extended rhythmic form, um, the cluster chord of this development. Everybody talks about this cluster chord. Um, Ron Holtz, in his analysis, uh, says it reminds one of Richard Strauss's atonal battle music and that the spiritual warfare re reaches its peak with this grand chord. And he describes this grand chord as probably being the chord cluster that certainly shock the saints in 1965 that's that's a great description about that and he's got a great analysis of the way that chord works and and where it comes all those sort of semitones the way they're clustered against each other 
between some of the different intervals, you still get that augmented fourth interval and way that works. The augmented fourth interval, of course, sometimes, or diminished fifth interval, depending on which way you want to look at it, sometimes mm. having been described as the devil's chord mm. in, in, in classical music. So, so maybe some of those intervals kind of sort of come from that. That's the sort of diabolus in the music and sort of takes us inspiration from there. get the the faith motive coming again in a resolute passage we also get again the chorale the fragment of the chorale but in a much stronger way there's this sort of there's this strength to that and and it moves into the dignified tam pam pam the opening theme uh, the second motive of the opening theme at the con dignita comes again uh, based around the fifth and the fourth that opening theme that sense of, of of resolution comes and then in the aftermath we have uh, letter q we have these kind of sort of moments of reflection it's like it's like the sort of grey dawn, everything, the sort of night time, the darkness of the night time has passed and we get this mysterious and quiet aftermath. I think RSA describes it as the grey dawn uh, that we get through there, the mysterious chord figures, the inverted figure that we get in this lovely and uh, baritone player's don't always love this solo. Oh, it's a bit pearly, isn't it? <laughs> it's a very pitching those A's and then pitching the second interval from the E up to the B would be any baritone player's nemesis, Absolutely. even these days. At this stage of the work, there's a performance discipline that comes to having a fresh pair of chops there yes, yeah. to be able to do that and to uh, to make that happen. And uh, But again, that's that cell that kind of gets restored uh, that we find there in, in that particular moment there. So it's really important motivically, but it's important programmatically in terms of sort of bringing back to our roots. Dum pum pum pa pum. That figure is fascinating because then ta dum pum pum ti da pa pa. That figure from the chorale that is taken from the chorale chorale then becomes compressed even more, and the letter R becomes these bell-like figures. Ti da pa pa. That rhythmic inflection that suddenly changes it. Pum tum tum tim pum pum ti da pum. 
it's fascinating the way that just comes out of that when you hear it you don't always see or hear that but when you actually analyze those cells and those motives that's exactly where it comes from the chorale becomes transformed into those bell-like figures that then kind of have even more bell-like stuff that's attracted to them before the sense of jubilation and quite rightly the climax of the tune is uh, letter s and uh, uh, the tune becomes uh, really important this whole movement around it Interestingly, in the original version that I heard, RSA uses the trombones in unison for this particular section to start it. It's not nearly so highly decorated, uh, but the trombones, of course, he was a trombone player Mm. himself. uh, But there's this huge jubilation and the bell-like figures that come out of the chorale then lead us into the chorale itself and the jubilation at letter S. And I believe the musically technical term for trombones in unison is the paint stripper manoeuvre. <laughs> yeah, better keep that to yourself. <laughs> yes, it is a chorale. It needs to sound, I was going to say, it needs to sound more organ-like. But then I've heard some tromba stops on some organs that would sound like trombones that are paint stripping. <laughs> so uh, apologies to all you fine trombonists out there. And... Um, would it be fair to draw a comparison between the carillon of the bell sounds that um, RSA is depicting here at letter S and perhaps the final movements of well, the Mussorgsky's Well, the carillon, yeah, the carillon comes just before that, mm. doesn't it? The carillon of, uh, comes just before letter S and then it's the tune. But yes, I mean, the sense of bells, bells are always a, the sense of bells is always a celebratory thing, isn't it? You know? Mm. And um, and you're thinking about the great gate of Kiev and the Indeed, bells yes. that suddenly <laughs> come, the big tune that mm. suddenly comes at the end there and the sense of bells. Yeah, I mean, there's a great parallel with that. say uh, I suppose musically he closes it off um, we end up with a little coda after we've had all the recapitulated material the chorale is both part of the recapitulation in the way that it comes at the end of the exposition it comes towards the end of this kind of recapitulation uh, music and uh, we get sort of we then move into letter U with what you know has to be a summation and a little coda that pulls together these things and pulls together our motives again. We get our opening motive come back. And there's so much kind of sort of self-quotation from the music that comes through here, as well as the scalic passages that we get. And uh, baritones, euphoniums start off two bars from the horns. Uh, it, It then gets developed. We get the fanfare figures from the end that give us these final triumphal fanfare figures as if they really are triumphing. taken a journey like that the material that you've had at the beginning becomes different at the end and takes on a different meaning 
and um, we get that opening motive that we get in the cornets and trombones. We get it here through the middle of letter U in that final uh, peoration and the final chords there. Some lovely modulations uh, towards the end, and even in the final phrases in the basses, but that lovely figure just coming and reinserting itself once more. I think for basses, for tuba players at that time in Salvation Army bands, it would have been quite unique mm. to find something as blooming awkward as that <laughs> yeah. to get your chops round and, and to be playing. But it's right there at the end and, uh, and brings it uh, to a, a, a great conclusion uh, as far as the piece is concerned. Great integrity in terms of the structures and, and great compositional detail in terms of the way the whole thing is put together but something that creates this great programmatic picture uh, and journey that, that he takes us on, but just so integrated uh, and, and kind of almost perfect. But he took a long time to get there. Mm. And maybe if there is anything for all of us who write, I think the lesson there is that sometimes if we were to listen to what we do first time, if we were able, and, and the difficulty, and, and this is kind of uh, going off slightly at tangent, but the computer will reproduce what we write perfectly these days. There is nothing like putting a composition on a live band, finding somebody to read it through for you, and you soon find out what works and doesn't work and what has integrity and what doesn't have integrity. The computer plays it perfectly and realises it for you in such a way that you think is absolutely fine. Actually, half the time it's a load of rubbish. And sometimes we need to learn to hear from some of the rubbish that we write, go back to the drawing board, take what's right and, and, and work a little bit harder at some of the things that we do. And, and I think the lesson for lots of us on this is actually finding structural and compositional integrity in what we do. Whatever we're trying to say, what we're trying to say is important, but the vehicle by which we say that makes it either work or pulls the rug from under our feet. Because if the vehicle by which we say it and by which we put those things together is even stronger, then what we say is even stronger as, an, as a result. And that's why this piece works. And I think that's probably why this is a timeless piece mm. of RSAs that still has that huge impact whenever you listen to it and is still a tour de force. We play so many things that have so many effects in them these days. Sometimes when it comes to playing dots and notes like this, where every note has to be in place, we can't get away with fudging it. <laughs> yeah, not the classic 3 2 one 3 2 one no, on the belt. <laughs> make it happen. Go blue there, guys. That will work. Doesn't work with this. It's absolutely super. It's absolutely brilliant.
Thank you very much, Howard, for such an insightful analysis well, and in, overview of the piece. In some ways, it's more of an overview, and there mm. is so much more that we could just mm. do and say. But in terms of the time that you have, I wouldn't wish to bore everybody to death. <laughs> I'm sure that <laughs> but I hope there's something of a passion for it mm. in there as well. Fantastic. Howard will be joining us in a later episode uh, for an interview looking more into his life and his experiences in Salvation Army music making. So we look forward to that greatly. Thanks again. So this brings us to the segment of the podcast that we like to call Band Mastermind. So, John... You have exactly one minute and 30 seconds to answer as many questions as you can correctly, and that's the idea. Um, and for the astute listeners, you may realise that we're reusing some of the questions. Because of the way we've recorded these, John won't have heard the episodes where we've used these yet, so uh, won't be able to have done any research. <laughs> okay. um, so, John Mott, are you ready to play Band Mastermind? I think so. Your time starts now, Robert Redhead was born in which UK city? London. Incorrect. Isaiah, was, uh, Isaiah Forty was a national brass band test piece in which year? 1987. Not quite, I'm afraid. Who wrote the festival march, The Proclaimers? Uh, Not quite, I'm afraid. We'll move on. What <laughs> hymn tune starts the RSA epic Daystar? Uh, I can't remember. Okay, I no worries. Quickly, I'll sing it to you. Okay, we'll, we'll see that at the end. No, uh, Dr. No, no. Kenneth Downey has a composing studio that overlooks which river? Yes. Correct. Which was published first, Celestial Prospect by Wilfred Heaton or A Pastoral Symphony by Robert Redhead? A Celestial Prospect. Correct. What year was Martin Cordner's first piece published? I don't know, it'd be quite a long time ago. Um... I'm going to guess 1980 Not quite, but not a million miles off Eric Lyston's cornet solo Wondrous Day was originally written for whom? Correct Who arranged the tune I Love You Lord in the First Things First book? Very close, but not quite I'm afraid, move on to the next question In 1998 The Salvation Army's music department Became known as what? Oh, our time's up, but I'll give you a chance to answer this question. Uh, Music and Creative Arts Department. Not quite, I'm afraid. So, that gives you a total of four, correct? Which is not bad. About. (laughs) But not good either. (laughs) Not bad, not good. Okay, Okay. not disastrous. Uh, So we'll just go through the answers of the ones you didn't quite get. So if you ever do Band Mastermind again... For a different rival podcast, perhaps, you'll know the answers. So, Robert Redhead was born in Manchester, and his piece, Isaiah 40, was the National Brass Band Test Piece in 1996. It was Kevin Norbury that wrote the Festival March of the Proclaimers. Um, Would you like to have a go at singing the uh, tune at the beginning of Daystar? (laughs) Absolutely. That is correct. So... Or maybe we'll give you a bonus half mark for that. It was the tune Ascalon. Ascalon. That's the one. Um, Then you got a load of questions correct. Well, well, four of them them correct. Um, 
it was Trevor Davis that arranged I Love You, Lord, in the First Things First oh, right. book. Um, and in 1998, the Salvation Army's music department became known as the Music Ministries Unit. Oh, of course, the MMU. So, absolutely. Yeah. So, thank you again for your time today. It's been pleasure. a pleasure having you on the podcast. Well, thank you for doing, doing it. I think this is a great idea, and I think you should continue to do it. Thank you very much. Very kind words. Not at all. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of Fully Scored. As usual, if you have any questions about anything we've discussed today or any queries we can answer in later episodes, please contact us on our Twitter handle of at Fully Scored. You can also follow us on Instagram or the music editorial page on Facebook. Thank you once again to Major John Mott for joining us today. Thank you also to our producer, Simon Gesh. As always, he edits out all the bits where we're completely rubbish, hopefully, and uh, for organising our road trips like today in Cambridge and uh, just keeping us generally in check. Thank you also to the team of band nerds who helped with the band mastermind trivia. And thank you to you for taking the time out of your busy schedule, or maybe not so busy schedule, to listen to this podcast. Goodbye and God bless. (laughs) 